Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to this, our very latest podcast or vlogcast. And um, I think we do it every couple of weeks. And when we do, we like to sort of headline the big news that we feel matters in health. And and Lynn, I know, talks a lot about it. She's so knowledgeable. She just, just goes on with all sorts of stuff. So without and on and on and on. <laughs> without further ado, let's start. I think a really important story, Lynn, this from the, the top here is um now and this affects um mothers who are supplementing now with uh breast milk with um as well as anyone who puts milk in their tea or on their cornflakes, because researchers have just discovered it actually contains a dangerous pathogen. And uh, astonishing yet again that we stuff we've been using for years and years and years, and researchers have only now discovered, you know what, it's actually dangerous. Milk contains a thing called BMMF, which stands for bovine milk and meat factors, and they reckon it could cause cancer. And it's especially uh, the case for small children with immature immune systems. And um, But it's in all milk products that come from cows so it's cheese yogurt and um all of a sudden they're saying look we've discovered this this is dangerous it is a possible carcinogen which means it's cancer causing especially don't feed it to your kids and certainly not very small uh, uh, babies who you've been nursing do not give it to them um they're thinking of an alert to go out to everybody to let them know about this i'm sure the milk marketing board would have something to say to stop this but it seems pretty dangerous real worry um and the researchers who've come up with it are from the max rubiner institute in germany who are saying stop drinking milk and don't give it to your babies surprise lynn after all these years finally they've discovered well <clears throat> many alternative practitioners for years have warned about milk mm. in fact there it was a really interesting thing that one practitioner the late john mansfield i know was really jumping on the bandwagon against milk mm. when um a colleague colleague of his wrote about the fact that she developed breast cancer and she figured out that the cause was milk. <laughs> and when she stopped drinking milk, her cancer reversed. And many practitioners we know of, one of the first things they say with cancer patients is get off milk and milk products and dairy products. Um, and they say that also for many, many other illnesses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the bottom line is this whole idea that milk meant for other animals that are four times our size um, should be healthy for us is a crazy idea because, you know, we have our own milk that we create for our young. And um, that has a whole chemistry that's very different from cow's milk. So small wonder that this is going to be poisonous to us, as well as all of the things that's done to milk mm. now. And this story about John, John Mansfield, when did we cover that? Oh, 20-something years 20 ago. 20-something years ago. Mm. We were writing about this then. <laughs> that's why people need to read what doctors don't tell you. And, you, you uh, hear it from us first. A long time first, <laughs> 20 years before anybody else. 
So, yes, that's a, a very worrying story, I think. And something that's not broken out into the mainstream media at all, which is, to me, astonishing. But there we are. Not so astonishing when you think no? of where some of their um, advertising comes from. Ah, that must be it. Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> it's sadly become almost a commonplace now that when we hear yet another shooting in an American school or an ex-employee going back and blowing away all his uh, erstwhile ex-colleagues, that they say the person, the shooter, was depressed. And they put it down to that and leave it there. But there's a new study that's coming out that just suggests, well, it may not be the depression itself that's causing the problem. It could be the antidepressants they're taking. And the reason why is that these antidepressants, and mainly it's the SSRIs, which are the most common family of antidepressants, make people less empathetic to others. They don't sense other people's feelings. So they have, they're on a sort of low uh, empathy, uh, emotional level after taking these drugs. And uh, researchers at the University of Vienna carried out this test where they had people who take the antidepressant and those who didn't and showed them a whole series of images who people who are suffering and then wired up their brains to see what was happening uh, in, in the brain as they were watching these images. And they found that once the people had, were taking the SSRI, it was just like a deadening, that the brain was not responding whatsoever to these images of suffering. So, it you know, it, it could be that if we lose that level of feeling concern for others, it becomes so much easier to go out there with a, a six-shooter or whatever mm. it is and blow people away and not think twice about it. Well, I mean, it's scandalous that nobody is looking at this a little bit further in terms of the connection between the drugs and mass murder or just murder in general. I mean, it's been around, it's been well acknowledged that people taking one of the class of SSRIs, I mean, they were writing about this when Prozac first came out, mm. about, you know, amazing cases of, mm. you know, people going around, you know, killing people by biting them or mm. shooting them, you know, just crazy, crazy behavior mm. that was well beyond the bounds of what happens when people are just depressed. Mm. So uh, this should have been a study a long, long time ago. But I would love to see some where these connections get made. Okay, what other brain chemicals does it affect? And does it have any kind of effect on the vagus nerve, which is our nerve that mm -hmm. stimulates compassionate behavior? There must be something that just turns off mm. all of yeah. all of that. All of that ability to feel for anyone else, which enables somebody to just cold-bloodedly kill them. Heart attacks. Still the biggest killer, certainly in the West. In America, it kills around about 610,000 Americans a year. And it's responsible for one in every four deaths. Mm. And we still seem to be pretty clueless as to what heart disease is. I mean, we all went down this false trail for the longest time um, about cholesterol. 
And uh, that seems not to be the problem. And with about, I think, you know this, Lynn, I think around about half of all heart attack victims have normal cholesterol levels Mm -hmm. and the coronary arteries are not blocked up at all. Mm. Um, But then they said, well, maybe it's something to do with processed foods. And this seems an interesting line of inquiry because there's been a new study carried out by the Karolinska Institute in, in Sweden. And they say that they think heart disease and the sort that leads to the heart attack is actually the result of our inability to process sugars. And of course, uh, fast food, processed food, is very high in sugar. And they got this uh, clue from the fact that a lot of people who have bad gums or periodontitis are also more likely to suffer a heart attack. and that, But those with bad gums are also likely to be diabetic, which is a precursor of mm-hmm. heart disease itself. And the common factor between bad gums and heart disease, they reckon, is the thing called uh, dysglycemia, where the body can't metabolize sugar or glucose as it becomes properly. And, um, in fact, people with the disorder are twice as likely to suffer a heart attack as someone who doesn't have the problem. And so, all of a sudden, they're saying that dentists are now in the front line for treating heart disease because they seem to think that the the gum disease is one clue Mm. that the person is also not processing sugar properly. Um, so very interesting and nothing at all to do with cholesterol, nothing to do with furring up of arteries, but everything to do with processed foods, everything to do with our ability to process sugars properly. Here's the scary part about this amazing story. I think this is such an insight into heart disease and diabetes, the whole idea that your body is just not able to process sugar very well. Now look at what heart heart patients are usually given to eat. They're told to follow a low-fat diet. A low-fat diet is almost always a high glycemic or a high sugar diet. Um, it, at very least, it has loads of grains, which when they're metabolized by the body, just turn into sugar. So if you're not having fats, you're having lots of, and you're not having lots of red meat, you're having lots of carbs. So they're getting flooded with carbs and their bodies can't handle it. And so no wonder it just gets them worse. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. It ties in with a story we did a couple of weeks ago about dairy in general, how it does have a protective effect on the heart. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so far from being a problem, low fat this, low fat that, mm. is actually increasing the risk of heart disease. Mm. High fats is actually reducing it. Yeah, and I mean, it's what they should be telling patients, heart patients, is to follow something like a paleo-ketogenic diet where they've mm. got a high batch of saturated fats and they're not cutting them out. Mm. Thanks, then. Rheumatoid arthritis, it remains a mystery to this day. It's an autoimmune problem, they know that, and it tends to affect younger people. But what causes it, they don't know. 
But uh, research that's just come out has suggested a way that it could be treated at least. And that's by stimulating the vagus nerve. Now, Lynn, I think of anyone on this planet, you are a vagus nerve expert. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to hearing your take on this. But um, they've carried out this study using an electrical device which has stimulated the vagus nerve um, we're on a, on a group of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and others were given a dummy uh, device, which st- seemed to be doing the same thing, but actually wasn't. And those who actually had the proper stimulation um, showed in great improvement in the biological markers of rheumatoid arthritis. In fact, they were down by 30%, and they reported their symptoms had improved compared to those who had the dummy who didn't report any improvement, and nor were there any chemical marker improvements either. So this particular device was called a microregulator. And um, it's, it's early days, but it's very interesting that the vagus nerve should in some way help treat rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. I mean, the vagus nerve has a lot of activity that it's responsible for. It's the longest nerve of our body. It starts in our neck. It uh, attaches itself to all the major organs of the body. It's involved in all of them. And so it winds its way all the way through the body. What I know mostly about with the vagus nerve is it's involved in, it gets activated when we are involved in you know, compassionate thoughts of compassion, like when we see um, images of starving children, um, when we feel grateful, um, when we feel, you know, those kinds of um, positive attitudes of abundance and joy, then it gets activated. But particularly it's caring. It's involved in caring when we're looking after people. Mm. So, this this is a wild guess, but maybe there is something related to feeling shut off or disconnected mm. with people with rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. Um, and when this is activated, it would maybe it would stimulate a sense of connection, compassion, etc. But you know, it's certainly worth following up on. Sure. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because yeah, it ultimately, as you say, it doesn't really matter how the nerve is stimulated. Mm. So whether it's good deeds, empathy, what have you, if mm. it does get stimulated, maybe for people with rheumatoid arthritis, they'd start seeing an improvement. Absolutely. I mean, it does a lot of other biological mm. things um, that is beyond my knowledge. But um, but even so, looking at this possible connection, mm. I'd be really interested too if a lot of patients with rheumatoid arthritis Start helping other patients with rheumatoid arthritis, let's say, mm. and just see in activating their, you know, their caring nerve, whether that has any kind of effect on their arthritis. Listeners, I think you've just heard the makings of a case control study there. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. Thank you. Stop watching the telly and get outside. <laughs> It's one of the best things you can do. Get out into the park, get out into a wood if you're nearby. Spend two hours a week, that's all. It's a few minutes every day, folks, and you'll feel a whole heap better. 
It's not me saying it. It's not your mum saying it. It's researchers from the University of Exeter saying it. They've done a test so they know. And they're saying that people who spend time in woodlands, town parks, country parks, or beaches will all reap great rewards. Uh, but you've got to do it for 120 minutes or two hours over the course of a week. So, as I say, on a daily basis, not so much. You can do it. And um, it's not a new idea. Of course, human beings have been doing it for about a few, few uh, millennia or more. Um, and the Japanese, being jolly clever, have packaged it up, and they call it Shinrin Yuko, or forest bathing. It's forest bathing, guys. And they say that it really can help reduce stress and anxiety and give you a general sense of well-being. Well, I walk in a park a lot. And I must say, I feel pretty damn good. <laughs> what do you reckon, Lynn? Well, there's probably a whole lot of good reasons for it. I mean, first of all, you're breathing better levels of oxygen. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you're walking on ground, not mm -hmm. pavement. Mm -hmm. And we know that, you know, earthing is really good for you. Mm -hmm. um, we're, there's more studies, and we've talked about them on this podcast. Um, you're surrounding yourself by beauty and nature you know, which is just one of those big feel-good things. We are, we are part of nature. So, you know, this is not surprising mm. that it, it... And also, there are a lot of great negative ions mm. in um, forests and woodlands, et cetera, et cetera. And negative ions, as opposed to the positive ions, extra charge that we're surrounded by when we're in front of electrical equipment like computers and phones, et cetera, et cetera, when we've got a lot of negative ions, they make us feel peaceful. They are better for our intuition. They're just mm. good for us in every regard. Mm. And, you know, even just the simple practicalities of getting away from your problems, going for a walk also help as well. But, yeah, so it's it's all good. I mean, it's probably not a very surprising uh, piece of work. I suppose the only original, so I suppose addition to it is that it's uh, they've paced out 120 minutes a week. Otherwise, not really a great surprise, but worth relating again, I suppose. The news about CBD, cannabidiol, just get better and better. Um, it was, you know, first came into the market maybe 10 years ago as an anti-epileptic, and it was very successful in reducing attacks. And then uh, people latched onto it as a pain reliever, and again, very successful at that. And now, finally, researchers have discovered this also a very powerful antibiotic, and even against some of the superbugs that have evolved with the overuse of the standard antibiotics. It, it could well become a frontline antibiotic in its own right uh, in a, and could be our answer to defeat the superbugs, say researchers at the University of Queensland in uh, Australia. But as often is the case, they uh, almost made the discovery by mistake. They'd been testing a synthetic form of cannabidiol, which is the derivative of cannabis and hemp. Uh, so they'd been testing this synthetic form on, on just a simple skin condition when they realised it was doing much more than that. It, and it was actually defeating, treating serious staph infections. And um, what they found equally interesting, that even over a long time, it was just as effective 
as the first treatment. So, in other words, the 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 it was it, the bug was not getting used to the cannabis. No, and resistant to it. Wasn't resistant to it. And of course, in addition to which, it also works as an anti-inflammatory, the research uh, team said. Um, so there we are. I mean, it's a very, very interesting product. I mean, as we, uh, we've said before, CBD is on the list of products to be banned by the EU. There's a big mm-hmm. campaign going on in, in Britain at the moment to make it available more widely. Doctors are umming and ahhing over it, but yeah, it looks like the best thing since sliced bread. Well, I think what's really interesting about this is One of the big problems of superbugs and bugs in general is a thing called a biofilm, which is a a kind of bacterial growth um, that makes it hard to actually get to these infections and kill these bugs. And this stuff penetrates it and is able to go to the heart of these bugs and get to them. And as you say, it's really, it's even been able to go after, you know, MSRA type drug, uh, uh, bugs, you know, which antibiotics are powerless against. Mm. And I think the fact that it isn't that antibiotics don't mutate against this and become resistant to it is hugely promising. Mm. So if any, if doctors have any sense at all with all the problems they have with MRSA, I mean, we have lost at least two friends to MRSA in the hospital and a third one got it after getting an, a very important operation, but cured himself. Um, if they recognize that this is actually going to be a successful treatment about this stuff, they'll run to, they should run to um, embrace it with both arms mm. and stop the EU from this madness. Mm. But, of course, the problem is that the drugs industry pretty much controls medicine. Medicine is a Mm. drugs delivery system, fundamentally, and they pull the strings. And if there is something that could attack their revenues, certainly in the immediate term, they're going to do what they can to stop it. I mean, in the longer term, they'll probably take over loads of CBD companies. But in the immediate term, they'll they'll look to stop it. Mm -hmm. And... um, just, just to wrap up, I just want to say again that, um, you know, we do live in very worrying times that um, a lot of anti-drug or drug-free alternative sites that look to find natural solutions to problems are being closed down or, you know, certainly Facebook have, have been doing that. We've seen... Um, they refuse to take their advertising too. Well, that too, but they have lost their accounts as well. And um, Google has changed its algorithm, so finding this material is becoming increasingly hard. Um, we know we exist as a as a physical magazine on the newsstands, but you know we we got banned by Whole Foods the other month, and um, you know there really is an attempt to shut this stuff down. And it's really important that people like us, we're investigative journalists first and foremost, are allowed to thrive. Because our research does genuinely help many, many thousands of people. We've been doing this for 30 years. We know it does. And we've met many people who have been directly helped by our work. And it's always been a non-drugs solution for them. But, you know, if we can't be found 
you know, there's always a danger we could disappear. And it's very important that even if you don't want to subscribe, because I do understand people are short on time and don't want to read something else, but you can support us. And it's very important that our work keeps going. So we have created a donate uh, button, a donate page, where you can do that. And I would urge you to do so. We're, our website's wddty.com. I have to tell you because you probably wouldn't find it on Google anymore. <laughs> um, but go and see it if you haven't. And please donate if you can uh, mm -hmm. because it is important that we're around and we continue to be around and thrive and investigate and point out not just the shortcomings of Big Pharma, of which there are many, but looking for stuff that genuinely could help you maybe one day, certainly others with chronic health conditions. And um, it is important that that voice is kept alive. Well, and there aren't too many voices out there like us anymore. Um, if you've probably noticed, you can't read this in your newspapers. You don't read unbiased accounts um, about alternative medicine in the general press anymore. And that's uh, for one simple reason. So much of the press get their advertising from Big Pharma. Mm. So there are a few people who are not for sale, old-fashioned journalists who really think it's important to be the fourth estate, to be a watchdog for the public on health. It's more important than ever. So please continue to support us and to make sure that this lone voice continues to be heard. Thanks, Lynn. I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you again soon. <laughs>